All right. Um, I have one, two slides. I have a cover slide, and then I have a slide, and that's all we have for tonight. Uh, and it's not because Bruce was not prepared. Uh, as I did a couple of weeks ago, I leaned very heavily on what Bruce had prepared ahead of time. So he, and he's, he has multiple pages of material that we probably will not get to all of it. And that's good. I'd rather it be that way than he have a paragraph for me to work with. Uh, but we have a lot of good material to cover tonight on the subject of Messianic Psalms. And this is a part one of part two, so Lord willing, uh, he'll be back uh, on his feet and whatever his arm condition will be will be better than it is today, next Wednesday the 9th, and he can uh, take us through part two. But I'm going to try to get through part one as much as possible. Um, your comments, your questions are always welcomed. Uh, if it's something lengthy, we'll get a microphone to you uh, so that everyone can benefit from hearing. If it's something very brief, just uh, shout it out, and I'll make sure that I repeat it if, if necessary. When we talk about Messianic Psalms, and this is, he has three questions in the little outline that some of you are using. Uh, it, in one fashion, deals with uh, the subject of what or whom, and that's kind of, that's our first slow pitch softball for the night. When we're talking about messianic psalms, it's talking about, talking about Christ. And so the words Christ and the word Messiah are uh, directly connected together, one being of Hebrew origin, one being of Greek uh, origin. And when we use the word Christ or Messiah, I talked about this maybe three weeks ago in a lesson, it's the idea of the what, the anointed, the idea of a person who is being uh, coronated and identified as the leader or special one. So there's not multiple messiahs. There's a single messiah. There's not multiple Christs. There is one Christ. And this brings me to uh, a story I've told a couple of different times. But someone else brought it up in a study a couple of days ago, or last week, I guess it was, that Jesus is not his first name and Christ is his last name. Uh, and we look at that and we kind of say that's kind of, you know, that's kind of funny. Cause we, but people who are not familiar with the notion of Jesus Christ are not familiar with the fact that Jesus is his name and that Christ is a title or an identifier. So these psalms are important for those of us as Christians. And again, I'm, you're going to see me using Bruce's notes a lot uh, because of their demonstration in a very detailed way that God planned for salvation through the Messiah or through the Christ. He says it's amazing the details about the death of Jesus and about his life and the people and events surrounding it spelled out ahead of time in the book of Psalms. While the book of Psalms is not generally considered a book of prophecy, it is certainly filled with prophecy. And if I remember correctly, in fact, I'm looking at it right now. That's one of the other questions he had. What does he mean by that? What do we mean by that? When, you, when someone says open to a prophet or a prophetic book, we think of Isaiah, we think of Jeremiah, you may even think of other older texts that deal with Elijah. We don't typically think of the book of Psalms as being a prophecy book, but yet the argument is it's a prophecy book. Why does that make sense? Foretelling. Foretelling. It speaks to the future. It does what prophecy is in many ways. And usually it is about. And usually when we think about prophecy, we think about the idea of predicting the future. And that's certainly a component of prophecy, but prophecy is also the speaking of what God has to say. 
And so in many ways, you can say open to a book of prophecy and you have a one in a 66 chance of getting it right because the whole thing is God's will being uh, uh, revealed. Uh, even where they do not speak directly about the coming Messiah, a common theme in the Psalms is of redemption, and redemption was the ultimate purpose of the Messiah coming to earth. So the Messianic Psalms speak of Jesus from his birth all the way to his betrayal, from his torture to his death, from resurrection to ascension, from his worldwide reign to his coming again. They speak of the Messiah's king and priest and prophet. So Bruce had uh, put this in the notes that he sent to me, and I wanted to share it, and you may need your glasses to see that. Uh, some, in fact, I almost need mine to see it from here, um, but I have them just in case. Uh, you'll have here uh, a dozen and a half references in the Psalms on the left, in the center, the prophecy or description, and on the right side, the fulfillment in the New Testament of those various prophecies. Uh, This is a sampling of the prophecies related to Jesus that transpire in the Old Testament. Some of you, and you're more than welcome to take pictures of this, I can send this to you. Uh, I, I still have it. Bruce can send it to you. Also, many study Bibles have this in it. Uh, so you may look in your study Bible and you may see this exact chart depending on who published your, your particular Bible, uh, where it came from. Let's just look at a sampling of them. Incidentally, uh, if you can read that, which chapter or, or psalm uh, is quoted most up on this chart? Which number? 110 has two instances. 22 has one, two, three, four, four to four, four or five instances. But you have, but Psalm 110 is certainly a very powerful one. I'm glad you brought that one up. We're gonna look at 110 here in just a second. We'll look at 22 at some point this week or next week. Um, but let's go to Psalm 16 for just a brief moment. Like I said, we're just gonna do a sampling. We could go through all of these and look at them, but that the point is already proven. But let's look at Psalm 16 and uh, go to verse 10. And this was an interesting one that came up actually in a study that David and I had yesterday, not this particular psalm, but this particular terminology. Uh, Verse 10 says, For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. That's Psalm 16 and verse 10. Does anybody have a different word than Sheol there? Everyone's got Sheol? And there can be some confusion once you get into the New Testament on the subject of death and the place of those who have departed. And this is a little bit beyond the scope of our study tonight, but those of you reading from the, from the King James Version will see the word hell used when it sometimes should not be the word hell, um, like uh, we see uh, in Luke 16, for example, among other places. What is Psalm 16, verse 10 telling us? Or, or what, why is it prophetic in its nature? Let me ask it that way. Resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died, and the fact that Jesus died doesn't really prove much. The fact that he rises from the dead means absolutely everything. And we see that foretold a thousand years, we said give or take, 
before the event would transpire. Let's go over to Psalm 110. I'm glad that Jonathan highlighted Psalm 110 because it's a very powerful psalm. They're all powerful. But let's look at 110 uh, very briefly, and we'll just make a couple of observations because we see it referenced a couple of times along with uh, 69, 118, and then, of course, 22. 22 probably deserves a class or two in and of itself. But let's look at Psalm 110. It's very brief. Uh, verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Drop down to verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not relent that you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, so we see two different things there. One, the idea on the chart of ruling over enemies and the other is being a priest forever. What is true about priests, and this is, this is guess what I'm thinking, although I think this one's pretty easy. What is true about priests and kings in Old Testament times? Okay, we know, we know where the priests come from. Okay, so there's one thing. What else do we know about priests and kings? Well, they, they all died. That's, I wasn't thinking that one. That's a, that's a good one. What were you going to say, David? They're anointed. So there's a lot of different things that are happening here that as we kind of uh, weave the story of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, that all come together with him. We're going to talk about some big numbers. Uh, Bruce did a really good job in, in, in his notes of talking about the uh, exponential uh, inability for these things to all come to pass with one particular individual, one particular person. So there are a large number of specific details about the life and the work of Jesus the Messiah, which are foretold here in the Psalms and then alluded to or directly quoted in the New Testament. And we're going to look at some of those here in the New Testament here in just a minute. Anything on this chart that you, because we could, like I said, we could spend three minutes on all 16 or 18 of those. Anything that you wanted to say about, at this point uh, before we move on further that we haven't said yet? Okay. All right. I'm going to set that to the side because we may come back to that. But Jesus says that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning me. He went on to open their eyes to the scriptures. He says it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Earlier in his ministry, he had pointed to various Psalms, wherein he tries to demonstrate and, and does successfully demonstrate that what was going on was about him and was fulfilling divine prediction. So we're not, I think that's a really important point. We are not left to wonder, was this really about Jesus or was this really prophetic in nature? Because Jesus himself goes and he quotes from these places and he says, in essence, here's exhibit A, B, C, D about me. So it's, he, he says this is all coming to fruition. For example, his entry into Jerusalem, uh, the people shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. 
which goes back to Psalm 118, verse 26, which is the very last statement that is made here on the chart. And the scribes and high priests were offended. Jesus pointed to them to Psalm 8 and verse 2, which is the second line saying, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise there in Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 through 16. So by way of introduction to wrap up here, and then we're going to look at basically three kind of big major observations. Um, Speaking to the group about the Messiah, Jesus asked them whose son he was, and they said that he was received as the son of David. And then Jesus used Psalm 110, which Jonathan rightly pointed to, to show that the Messiah also had to be David's Lord. On the cross, Jesus alluded to Psalm 22, 69, I thirst, and likely was drawing attention to the 22nd Psalm when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which is the Psalm's opening verse. A lot can be said about that statement, about what that means, and and I think in some ways we've got that wrong over the years. Some people have got that wrong over the years. But that's, again, beyond the scope of our study tonight. So about three or four uh, major points. The first, and that is prophecies served as a tool for identifying the Messiah. Prophecies served as a tool for identifying the Messiah. What does that mean? So we know who he was, right? So remember that before Jesus came, before the Christ, the Messiah came, there were other people who were claiming to be the chosen one, or at the very least, claiming to be someone special. And they were frauds, and they came to nothing. By the way, bonus question of the night, where could we go, and there may be more than one place, but there's one place in my mind, uh, to prove that there were false messiahs, who claimed that they were something, and I'll give you a hint, they came to absolutely nothing. Where would we go? Someone, someone says, Acts, particularly, who made that statement? Gamaliel, right? I heard three or four people say it. Remember Gamaliel saying, guys, if this is really from God, there's nothing we're going to be able to do to stop it. But if it's not from God, it'll pass away just like the other, uh, or just like, well, in his mind, just like other frauds, but just like frauds in general. But of course, Jesus would be anything but a fraud. So prophecy served as a tool for identifying, showing who the Messiah was going to be. Jesus lived on the earth and he taught and performed a broad range of miracles. He did so not simply because he had compassion, but to fulfill prophecies that would identify him as the long-awaited Messiah. So John the Baptist asked a question And he says, are you the coming one? Are you the one we've been looking for? Or should we look for another? Jesus answered and said, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. His point was that John could compare what the Old Testament had predicted the Messiah would do with what Jesus was doing and reach the right conclusion about Jesus being the Christ. I want to go back to a point that Bruce had made in the previous statement that I made, and that is uh, just ask the question a little bit beyond the scope of our study tonight, but I think within uh, what we're talking about, why did Jesus perform miracles? 
Established belief. And I think, I think there's two, three, four maybe good answers. Established belief. To confirm. Compassion, which is one of the points that Bruce had made a minute ago. What did you say, Nate? Same thing. So there's multiple reasons for this. But I think it's a very good... Um, uh, David and I have been engaged in this study for the last year or so, looking at one of the Gospels with someone, just going through and looking at all, all the different things that he did. And one of the things that we've tried to stress, and one of the things that we always stress when we're talking with someone who may be a little bit newer in the faith or reviewing their faith, is that Jesus doesn't just perform miracles just for the fun of it, or to put on a show, or just to heal someone. Almost always there, in fact, I, th- I think you could probably say always with an asterisk next to it because there might be some ambiguity. It's, it's, it's to teach a broader message because Jesus was always more concerned with the spiritual than he was the physical. Remember when he said, you guys are here because I gave you food, because of the bread, because of the fish. You're not here for the truth on one occasion. Likewise, we can point present-day unbelievers to the Psalms that teach about the Messiah and then compare Jesus' life and the work to those psalms. So he's saying that when we teach someone today, one of the ways that we can do so is by using the psalms as kind of a guidebook. Um, this may be an unfair question because you didn't have this ahead of time to think about, but I'm gonna, oh, it's an unfair question I'm going to ask anyway. Is there a psalm, maybe that we've talked about already, or maybe that's on the screen, that you can easily kind of... Uh, imagine going to teaching someone about the gospel who has very little knowledge of the gospel. Is there a psalm you say, yeah, I can see me using that in a, in a discussion with someone in my kitchen sometime for 30 minutes. 23. And what would you say, uh, microphone's going to come to you, because uh, I, I, you, I want people to hear this, because I think I, I like the 23rd. Oh, no, no, you're going to give a longer answer because David, I'm, we're not going to make David walk all the way here just for that. So I, I would say the 23rd Psalm would okay. be good at teaching the gospel because it teaches someone what Jesus did and why in, hmm. his, in his death on the cross in particular. Okay, I like that. I think that's very, very good. And we talked about, what, two weeks ago tonight? Yeah, two weeks ago tonight or three weeks ago tonight, we talked about the 23rd Psalm as being this very uh, beautiful psalm that's not just about comforting us at a funeral, but it's about providing for us hope even for the living. Uh, Chris, yeah, go ahead. I'd go with 22. Yeah. Um, The the prophecy angle, but also uh, it, it makes sense to me. I won't say that it's 100%, but it makes sense to me that Jesus was quoting that on the cross as a kind of a, this is where I am right now, mm-hmm. as a lesson to those around him at the time. Just my take on it. But Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, just the, and then all the things that happened there that clearly happened uh, to Jesus right. himself. Right. Very good. I've made reference before to a book that is probably two inches thick, called All the Messianic Prophecies, or All the Prophecies of Jesus. And I can't find that book. It, it, did, I loan, <laughs> did I loan it out to anybody? And anybody holding a hostage? Oh, <laughs> class is over. <laughs> no, no, I'm fine with it. <laughs> I forgot that I'd done that. See, when you get my age, 
you forget these things. No, that's, and you, I don't need it. I don't need it. But, I, I, but seriously, as I was thinking about this class, I was like, where is that book? But I'm glad, okay, good, good. I'm glad to know it. So, okay. <laughs> I really had figured I gave it out to someone in California or something. But uh, it's, it's a neat book, isn't it? And it just goes through and, it's, and at length and with every prophecy and it goes and parallels all the passages and, and brings in some commentary and stuff. So it's, it's a really neat little book. Uh, uh, okay, honest hearts will see. Anybody else have a psalm that you wanted to throw into the mix? 22, 23 are great ones. 110, Jonathan made reference to. Be a great place to teach from. Honest hearts will see that only Jesus fulfilled what was written in the Old Testament and in the book of Psalms. Uh, approximately, and this is maybe unfair, uh, but if you had that book, so Mr. Don and Mr. Nina can't answer this question, uh, roughly how many Old Testament prophecies were made about the coming of Jesus, give or take in a round number? About 300 plus, yeah. Uh, Bruce's notes has 330. I always use the number 300. Uh, and and we, we can't say 323 because someone would say, well, I don't think this is a prophecy. This is a 322. But 300 is a lot, right? Uh, and so the point that he's making here is that Jesus Christ of, uh, of Nazareth fulfilled everyone. Consider this. And I, I should have put this on the screen, especially for those of us that like to count. Thank you for, uh, uh, the statistical, prob- I got a card today about the counting, so, uh, consider that the statistical probability, okay, here we go, of one man fulfilling even eight of the 300, uh, is calculated as one in one with 17 zeros after it, which Quintillion, a uh, hundred quintillion. That's a big. That's just a big number. <laughs> uh, that's just so. The the point is, for a person to be born here, born of this woman, which incidentally is impossible unless there's some sort of uh, supernatural uh, divine involvement, uh, and then to say these things, do these things, go these places, is impossible. It is not going to happen. And this kind of goes with, uh, dovetails into David's sermon a couple of uh, months ago where he talked about the authenticity of Scripture and the fact that we don't have to guess whether or not this is really God's Word. So the Psalms can help ground us in knowing that the Bible is really real. John, did you have something? Okay, I thought, I'm sorry. I thought you looked like... Okay. The probability of fulfilling 48 is... One in 10 to the 157th power. The proof of Jesus being the Christ is absolutely overwhelming, and the Psalms are a major part of the evidence. So, the first big point that we're making tonight is simply that if you want to confirm the authenticity of Scripture and you want to confirm that Jesus is truly the Messiah, you can do so from the Psalms, even though there's only maybe a dozen and a half or two dozen listed here. Now, John's got some. I knew you were going to have some, I just knew it. That's exactly what Peter. Peter did in the first gospel sermon. He relied heavily on Absolutely. Psalms to convince those people that this Jesus they had crucified was the Christ. 
Yeah, in Acts 2, Peter goes back to the Psalms and other places and makes reference to those. Very, very good, John. Very good. Okay, uh, number two, Jesus' disciples use the Psalms in their teachings about him. So it's not just that they happen, but his disciples, those that followed him, said, we're going to go back to the Psalms in an effort to teach about him. Just as Jesus ascended back to heaven, Peter used uh, 69 and 109 to demonstrate in Acts chapter 1, the other disciples in the upper room, that Judas had to be replaced. This resulted in the appointment of Matthias. In a prayer in Acts 4, a direct quote. Let's go to Acts 4 real quickly here. That's kind of interesting. And then we're going to make reference to a psalm. Uh, But Acts 4 and verse 24. Acts 4 verse 24. Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them who by the mouth of your servant David has said, why do the nations rage if you plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. So there in those verses and actually some subsequent verses, uh, we see a quote from Psalm number two uh, as prophetic evidence that Jesus would be crucified by Herod, by Pilate, by Jews and by Gentiles. Uh, As uh, Brother John pointed out just a moment or so ago, Uh, There's a whole paragraph that Bruce wanted us to consider that this first gospel sermon in Acts 2 uh, on the day of Pentecost contains several uh, psalm quotations. Go to chapter 2, 25 through 28. Go to verse 34. Peter particularly uses Psalm 16, uh, which is row number 4, to illustrate that the resurrection of Jesus was anticipated and foretold. And then uh, the last paragraph here on this second major point that Bruce uh, pointed out is the idea that it's impossible really to do a comprehensive listing of all the usages of the early disciples made in the Psalms in preaching the gospel. But he did say it would be uh, remiss not to draw attention to Hebrews chapter, you have one in 13 chance, Hebrews chapter one, because it is, if you, if you have italics in your Bibles, almost the entire chapter is, is italicized, right? Uh, because italics typically mean a quotation from an Old Testament passage. Uh, in other, but let's, go, let's go over to Hebrews chapter 1 for just uh, maybe a minute or two just to get a flavor of that. Um, in my Bible, anytime an Old Testament passage is quoted in the New Testament, it's indented by about three spots and then it's italicized. Incidentally, I do not have red letters in this Bible. I think I mentioned that a couple years ago. I bought this Bible a couple years ago and it has no red letters, which is interesting because sometimes you have to look and see, wait a minute, is, is that Jesus saying that? Because sometimes it surprises you the things that he says. So, it's kinda, so sometimes study from a, a non-red letter Bible, just, just for fun. No extra charge for that tonight. Um, Hebrews 10, uh, once you start in verse five, uh, you see a whole line of psalms. Uh, For example, verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 1, is that what I said? I'm sorry. Hebrews chapter 1 in verse 5. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. 
Let all the angels of God worship him. The angels, he says, he who makes his angel spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, except your righteousness. So these are a number of different quotations from 97, 89, 104, 45, 102, 110, 103, 20, chapter 2. Uh, just, he's just listing and going back to Psalms. This may be another unfair question to ask, but for those of us that teach, whether it be publicly or whether it be privately, and that should be a lot of us, um, we should never be afraid to just rely on the scriptures, whether it be Old Testament or New Testament, to get our point across. And if people reject it, they have not rejected us, they've rejected the words. The point that I'm making is that some of the best, well, not some of the best, the best preachers that were inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, who wrote the book of Hebrews and who wrote these different books, just repeatedly went back and quoted and said, Here, here's the evidence. Here's the evidence. Can we just do the same in many ways? Say, here's the evidence. Don't, don't, don't take my word for it, we say sometimes, but check to see if it's in here. And so, in some ways, our job is much easier. Um, and um, I've, I've learned that more so in the last couple of years than uh, I have before, just because I, I, I admire the style with which someone that I care about works a lot. Um, all right. Number three, Messianic Psalms take different forms. So this gets a little bit technical. Bruce is a whole lot smarter than me. And so uh, he goes through and just does a really good job of, of kind of giving us about five or six different styles of messianic psalms. Uh, students should be aware that there are different forms of these psalms. Because of the diversity, it should also be observed that there is not a complete consensus about the psalms that are messianic. Same way with the prophecies in general, which is why we can't say there are 300 and whatever the exact number may be. One of those is the typical messianic psalm. In these, the subject of the psalm is in some respects a type or a shadow of the Christ to come. David is often such a subject. He was the king of Israel. He was a shepherd. And he was, to borrow from Acts 13, a man after God's own heart. Let's go to Psalm 69. We have not looked at Psalm 69 yet. Though we see a couple of references to it. But let's look at Psalm 69 and just look at two or three verses here very quickly here. Uh, verse 4. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. They are mighty who would destroy me. Being my enemies wrongfully, though I have stolen nothing, I still must restore it. Um, drop down to verse 9. Because zeal for your house has eaten me up, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. That last instance, verse 9, where do we see, I'm not asking for book, chapter, verse, but what occasion do we see that uh, reference in the New Testament? Cleansing the temple, right? When Jesus goes in, he says, you've turned... Uh, this place that is supposed to be sacred, holy, special, uh, and divine, and you've turned it into a common place for just money changers and people making a profit. And he says, that really disappoints me. And so he starts tossing tables and, and, and all that kind of stuff. 
So this serves as an example where in the original reference is to David, but he serves as a type of what Jesus would experience and to be to a greater degree. So that's the typical messianic. There are also, secondly, typical prophetic psalms. Psalm 22, which is what uh, Brother Chris pointed to, and we see uh, three or four references to Psalm 22 on the screen, fits this very well. Excellent example is formed. The psalmist uses language describing his then-present experience, which actually points beyond his own life and becomes historically and fully true only in the experience and the life of Jesus the Christ. Um, and that's one of the things that I, I struggled with years ago. I've gotten a little bit better about understanding it, is that what's the context for Psalm 22 that David is writing these things? And certainly we're much more familiar with the context of what Jesus was going through. So uh, when in Psalm 22 uh, David makes a statement, for example, when he says that my strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue clings to my jaws, and you have brought me to the dust of death. Our mind, well, I'll tell you where my mind goes. My mind immediately goes to the cross. However, David seemingly was experiencing something, not a crucifixion, but something that caused him distress as well. At least that's my understanding of it. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But my understanding has always been that David was going through something traumatic. Uh, and then, of course, it's a broader picture of what Jesus was going to go through, especially with some of the more particular details as outlined in the 22nd Psalm or other places that Chris or Sam or other, uh, others have, have talked about. Uh, a third or a fourth, depending on what number I'm on now, is indirectly messianic, indirectly messianic. In these Psalms, the composition refers to a king or the house of David in some form, but awaits a ultimate and higher fulfillment in the Messiah. So let's look at, let's go to, let's go to 72, just real quickly here. Um, actually, no, 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 let me, let me go to let me go to 45. Let me, I'm sorry. Let me go to 45. Um, in 45, which is a little bit shorter, down in about verses 5 and 6, uh, it says, Your arrows are sharp in the heart of your king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. And then verse 6, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. What's a scepter? Symbol of power, the idea of some sort of a, I don't want to say stick because that sounds too, a staff, it sounds too, too crude or whatever, but a, a symbol of power and this idea of uh, someone who deserves rightly that power. And like we said, Jesus is both anointed, he is prophesied, he is talked about in all these different fashions, and so it's an indirect messiah. Uh, messianic prophecy. Uh, fourth option is purely prophetic. Unlike the first three forms, these psalms refer solely to Jesus as the Christ without any reference to any other son of David. And Bruce uh, submits that Psalm 110, which is where Jonathan took us very early, is, a, is kind of a good example of that. And then the last of those is what he calls 
enthronement psalms, psalms that anticipate the coming of God and the consummation of his kingdom, which will be fulfilled. And you could look at, uh, 90, I'm not sure they're on the screen here, uh, 96, 98, 99 as an example of that. I want to get to the last major kind of application kind of thing here, but I want to open it up for comments. Uh, we're not going through every messianic psalm and um, delving into every aspect of it. But something else that you want to say before we get to our final three points. Okay, the final three points, I really like this part. uh, And again, I'm just using what Bruce had to say, is he calls these keys to unlocking the meaning of the Psalms, of the Messianic Psalms. Three keys that can be used to unlock the meaning of Psalms that relate to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, well, that's, that's kind of redundant, right? But Jesus as the Messiah or Jesus as the Christ. Number one, a New Testament quotation from a psalm, from such a psalm. So when you see a New Testament italicized quotation in most of our Bibles, the best way to interpret a passage of Scripture is by using Scriptures. And that's a, that's a kind of a um, universal rule for all of us who study. When a New Testament writer tells you what a psalm referred to, you have therein what Bruce calls a divine commentary. Many of our modern Bibles help us identify where the quotations are from. As Matthew's describing Jesus' teaching in parables, he indicates that style of teaching was a fulfillment of something spoken by a prophet. And then he quotes Psalm 78, for example. In other places, the gospel will say, it is written, and then quote, Psalm 69 in John chapter 2, for example. So a New Testament quotation from such a psalm is an opportunity to say, this teaches me something. So there's so many different ways of studying the Bible. I think back to a Young People's Weekend that we had two years ago, and I uh, think back to even Caleb uh, uh, giving some of the young men uh, some ideas about how to study the Bible, where you do a chapter, then you go back, do a chapter, go back. It was complicated. He's, Caleb's smarter than me, um, uh, in spite of his dad. So I said that. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> Shane can take it. But no, Shane's very smart, too. Uh, but the whole point is there's so many different ways that we can study the Bible. And one of the ways is just pick out all the Psalms in the New Testament. Just find every Psalm in the New Testament and then study that for a month or two. Uh, just one way of doing it. Okay, number two. About whom is the Psalm speaking? Like the Ethiopian eunuch in Isaiah 53, probably the most famous instance of that. You've got to determine who is being spoken about, the psalmist himself or some other person. Remember, the Ethiopian says, this man here, who is this guy? Who, what's he talking about? He's talking about himself, talking about someone else. I don't understand what's going on here. Some psalms clearly have two people speaking, but it is not immediately apparent who is speaking. Other times, pronouns are used, leaving some uh, mystery. Often to answer the who is being spoken about question, we rely on our first key, which is when it is then discussed in the New Testament. I thought that was a really good point. That is, I'm reading the Psalms, a Psalm that's quoted in the New Testament, particularly a Psalm about Jesus. Now, who's he talking about? What's he talking about? What's he trying to get at here? oh, go over to the book of John chapter 2 or go over to Acts chapter 2 and you can shed some light on it that way. 
And then number three, and then we're going to wrap up here and we'll have about uh, a minute or two for final comments. Uh, Determine the time about which this psalm is referring. So number one, we said, is a New Testament quotation from a psalm. Number two, who's the psalm talking about? And number three, determine the time about which the psalm is referring. Often a psalm will first appear to be referring to an event in the time the psalmist was writing, and in part that may be true, but the argument is a closer look often will reveal only a partial application to the persons or nations before Christ. So go, uh, let's end in Psalm 30 for just a, a moment here. Psalm 30. And we're not going to read all of it. We may read a couple of verses here in just a second. But the fullest and major application is to something to occur, is that something's to occur in the life and the work of Jesus. And Bruce says, read the 30th Psalm. And you can read that on your own time. It's only 12 verses, so it's going to take you two minutes to read. It is said in the superscription that it is a song uh, at the dedication of the house of David. And it speaks of escaping foes, of being triumphant. And this is the last paragraph. And I thought this is a really, really good point to kind of to end on here is that David certainly experienced these things in escaping from uh, who? Who would David have to escape from? There's more than one answer. Saul, uh, Absalom, others. But consider that also it speaks very much of Jesus' victory over the grave. I thought that was kind of interesting. And I was thinking you could do a a sermon on Psalm 30 about um, defeating the grave Psalm 30, and then use your New Testament passages to kind of correlate into that, to kind of combine with that. So we've got uh, what looks like about 60 seconds left. I've talked a lot. Uh, I've used Bruce to a lot. But is there anything else you want to add? And, it, and yeah, Brother Mitch, while Mitch is getting ready to talk, uh, Lord willing, next week Bruce will be back. And Lord willing, we'll be talking about uh, the second half of Messianic Psalms. So there's a lot more to cover, obviously. Brother Mitch. I think uh, another thing to talk about the, the power of these prophecies is the fact that they can relate to the, the individual at the time and also the Christ in the future. Uh, Excellent. Just, just that idea that it can, you know, a psalm written by someone about their personal experiences at this point in time in the past mm-hmm. can match up so perfectly uh, with the life powerful, of Christ right? is, is incredibly powerful. Very good. Excellent thought, Mitch, and a great way to kind of think about next week. Uh, go ahead and look at your outline for next week. Uh, if you want to read Psalm 30 as some bonus material, certainly that would be good. Appreciate all the comments tonight, and uh, we'll be prayerful that Bruce is back with us soon. Thank you all.